Hey, Sean, how you doing? Uh, welcome to the Living Undeterred show. Thank you, Jeff. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you. You know, we were talking before we jumped on air and um, just how exciting life can be when we lean into new things that, you know, and you, you're just a little older than me, but you're, you're well, embracing you're things. Say, you're <laughs> trying to use the word little. I think it's yeah. years, but anyway. Um, but the fact you're just taking on things that people at your age are looking at sitting on a beach somewhere and sipping pina right. coladas or playing golf right. with their, with their lawyer friends, which fits well for right. you. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, I don't know there's something about, there's something about learning that I'm right. addicted to at 56 that I just, it's exciting. A lot of my friends look at me and they're like, why don't you slow down, Jeff? I'm like, no, I just, right. I, there's so much for me to learn. So we have a lot to talk about. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, you and you. I had our first kind of a, just a spontaneous conversation um, that ended up being over an hour. And I think we both had to shut it off because <laughs> right. we just went down so many interesting holes and, and uh, roads. And um, I'm really excited to have you on the show. There's certain things that you do that are really close to my heart that actually have kind of exposed me to some areas of this uh, opioid crisis we have in this country that I never right. really thought about, you know, that now you're kind of plunged into. But first, a um, little bit about Sean, where are you from, and a uh, little bit about you. Yeah, so I'm from a, a little uh, little farm town about an hour west of uh, Spokane called Ritzville, kind of an interesting name. Anyway, my dad was a, a country lawyer, practiced there for 53 years. He'd been born and raised there. So I spent my first 18 years uh, there and then uh, went to the University of Washington and uh, sort of had two goals in life at that time. And one was not to come back to Eastern Washington. And the other was was not to be a lawyer because everybody in my family was a lawyer. But anyway, I ended up uh, getting a physics degree at the University of Washington, working as an engineer for a while in Southern California, met my wife in 1974 and uh, um, spent four, a few years back on the East Coast uh, in Connecticut. And then uh, after my mom passed away, um, decided to, uh, to go to law school and went to the University of Oregon, graduated in 79. Mm-hmm. And I practiced for 44 years here in Spokane as a corporate lawyer. And still, okay. I'm, still, I'm a partner with a firm by the name of Lee and Hayes. Uh, that's we're in seven cities around the country, but we're based uh, headquarters here in Spokane. Okay, and um, now you are doing something, you know, uh, <laughs> different. I guess is a good way to term it. But how did you end up? Uh, and Maddie's place is just an, you know, absolutely amazing organization. Uh, I yeah, really, no, really, no. I really want to have you talk about. Um. I don't know. I maybe explain a little bit about what Maddie's place does, but what kind of got you to be in this area of, of uh, this opioid crisis that we have? Yeah. So, um, so we have a, a here in Spokane, uh, it's the fourth such facility in the country. It's called a pediatric transitional care facility. Mm-hmm. And um, there's one called Lily's place in Huntington, West Virginia, another called Bridget's path in Kettering, Ohio. Uh, another called Hushabai in Phoenix. And then the fourth is uh, Maddie's Place here in Spokane, Washington. And we, like these other clinics, um, provide um, nurturing uh, medical care um, for infants that are born uh, suffering from uh, dependency on drugs. And it can be opioids, it can be non-opioids. And so that is really our focus. How I got interested in this is that I've known um, a woman by the name of Tricia Hughes um, since uh, 1999, and she and her husband had moved out here from Chicago. He's actually uh, become the senior pastor of, of the church that I attend. 
but I knew at the time they came out that she was an acute care um, nurse and had a special love uh, for children. She and her husband uh, have four uh, biological children of their own. Um, but about 2000, 2003, 2004, I ran for Congress. And she, every time I ran into Tricia, she was tugging on my uh, shirt saying, if, you know, when you win, when you win. She was, she was very optimistic. I, I ended up getting beat badly. But anyway, she said, when you, when you win, when you win, uh, you, we've got to do something about these babies that are born dependent on drugs. It's just everywhere. And it's just a mess in the foster care system. And it's just incredible what's going on. So I watched Trisha uh, during the early 2000s and past 2010. She and her husband um, ended up taking care of, I suppose over the last 20 years, they've taken care of 20 to 25 of these babies. Hmm. And um, and I, I watched her and her husband adopt five of these babies. So they have nine children. Uh, the third child is a little, hmm. little baby girl named uh, Maddie, who uh, that wasn't her name. She, I don't think she had a name when they found her uh, 18 days on the street here in Spokane withdrawing from heroin. Wow. And, and the Child Protective Services got involved. Uh, police took her up to Sacred Heart Hospital, which is uh, our major hospital system here in Spokane. And uh, she had already, by 2008, developed the uh, kind of the nickname as the baby lady here in Spokane to take care of these uh, fra especially fragile babies. So after she was in the NIC unit for a little bit, um, in fact, I'm not, they may have contacted her even right away when the baby came, when Maddie came into the uh, hospital. But Trisha literally wore her Maddie in a, in a front pack for several mm. months as she went through withdrawal. And it was the worst heroin withdrawal she'd ever seen. And um, so we've named, uh, now that she's a beautiful 14-year-old girl and uh, very normal and uh, just a teenager. And uh, you never know uh, what she was exposed to and what, what uh, her background was. She's been adopted uh, by, by Carrie and Tricia Hughes. And she's a 14-year-old girl. So we've named, uh, named this venture uh, Maddie's Place uh, in honor of her. Um, but then does she kinda, know her past? Does she, does she know? Yeah, she's very, very familiar okay. with it. Yeah, she's okay. very familiar with it. In fact, she's being start, uh, requested to start talking uh, um, in uh, high school environments now that's about great. her background to start sharing because it's so that's prevalent great. and everything. So that's going to be a whole nother part of where this could go. What kind of numbers are we looking at, Sean? I mean, how many babies so the numbers, like are the numbers are The numbers are incredible. Nationally, the statistics are somewhere between 10 and 15% of all live births are, are um, babies, infants that are born dependent on hmm. some substance. Um, and that would include opioids, meth, um, you know, alcohol. and then if you start adding alcohol, I think the numbers even grow bigger. Yeah. There's not a lot of clarity on our visibility on these numbers, quite frankly. We, we have about 6,000 live births here at the four major hospitals in Spokane, Washington. Um, and if you take that 15% number, you know, we're probably at 900, but we, and we don't know, and this could be hyperbole, but we're concerned that the numbers in Spokane could be well over 2,000, between 2,000 and 3,000 of our 6,000 live births. Uh, we're not doing uh, regular mandatory urine analysis or cord analysis of, of everyone that's coming in and all the babies that are being born. So 
Uh, and a lot of these babies don't even manifest any, any withdrawal symptoms um, until after they've been discharged from the hospital, which is typically four to five days. Uh, hmm. Even if they That's... think there's been some drug exposure, they're usually uh, put out into the community within the first week. And some, some drugs don't even manifest themselves uh, until after they've been discharged, like meth, for example, doesn't show up for, two, for a few weeks. So hmm. we, we, if you look at other numbers, if you look at uh, the opioid crisis, generally, you know, it's estimated over 800,000 adult women are, um, you know, victims of substance use disorder. And uh, of that demographic, uh, and which is interesting, almost uh, 65% of adults that are misusing um, opioids are women, which right. is interesting. You know, I'd go, I almost would have thought it would have been men or at least 50-50, but for some reasons, it's almost two to one um, that it's impacting women. Hmm. Uh, and within that group of women, the largest demographic are ages 18 to 34, which are the birthing years. Right. So... Anyway, it was about 2017 that Trisha got uh, five folks or about 25 folks together in Spokane from different disciplines. I was the token lawyer, but there was a neonatologist and some social workers, some nurses, um, yeah, people in sort of the health health services area, and uh, and so that's kind of when I started really working with with Trisha, and we incorporated Maddie's place and got our 501c3 status in 2018 bought a facility and uh, started raising money right when the pandemic broke, which was interesting because we did most of our fundraising on Zoom, bought a 12,000 square foot facility that had been used for 20 years uh, to house abused children here in Spokane. Unfortunately, the need for that is quadruple. So they built a $35 million facility and we bought their old facility for a million and a quarter. And then we spent a year, year plus uh, remodeling it. And then we opened for services on October 3rd, just uh, a little over three months ago. I'm trying to remember, how did we cross paths? So Deborah Vitnick, um, I oh, think. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. He, I was just sitting here thinking about, now, I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Cause Deborah actually, and I, she was on my podcast. Um, it's crazy because I know so many people and I forget where I met everybody. Cause everyone kind of blurs together, <laughs> but yeah, Deborah's awesome. She, I watched, uh, got to see the documentary that she put together, which really opened my eyes about the, uh, the women's, um, uh, you know, issue with, with the opioid epidemic and how they've kind of got set aside because it became kind of a male dominated or a, a yeah. ethnic type, uh, issue for, yeah. for a long time. And women just kind of got kind of got forgotten about. And so she's kind of this documentary kind of brings that back to the forefront to have these conversations that, you know, it's easy to get distracted in certain aspects of this, uh, ep epidemic, but this women's issue, and then you go down to the babies, that's a, this is a big deal. And it's something that I think a lot of people in this, in these advocates out there, myself included, um, just really aren't that familiar with, um, a, the, the prevalence of the issue, but what are some of the solutions and how can we, how can we start to right this ship? And so these babies, A, aren't being born um, like this right. and, and, and B, if they are, what are the best ways that we can treat them so they have the best chances of having healthy lives? Right. And, and I think it's helpful to have a little more context of the problem. I mean, it's, it's a lot more fun and hopeful to talk about the solution, but, yeah. but you really appreciate what, or I, I, 
to really build the fire under folks. And you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on this one with you, Jeff, you know, you, you need to see how bad this is mm -hmm. and the impact that it's having on society. So a few other statistics that I think are helpful. Um, I mean, if we think just in Spokane alone, our population in the county is around 550,000, something like that. And if you, if you, if you, let's just say that it's a thousand a year that we're faced mm -hmm. with. We, we think it could be 2000 a year. Unfortunately, Spokane's been designated by the Drug Enforcement Agency as one of 11 cities in the United States in crisis due to fentanyl. So of our first 11 babies that came in, 10 um, were exposed to fentanyl. Mm. Um, many of them are polysubstance, so several different drugs in addition to, in, in addition to fentanyl. But let's say it's just, uh, say it's 1,000 babies a year over the last 20 years. That's 20,000 um, humans that have come out of the system just here in Spokane alone. Wow. And, the, and the statistics for these kids are just horrible if they don't get the right treatment during the first 90 days of life and really learn to bond and really learn to attach, it's just a disaster. So many go into the foster care system and the average one of these babies, they're called NAS babies, NAS for neonatal abstinence syndrome is, huh. is, the, is the, what we're, what we're right. treating. Um, the average NAS baby is in seven foster homes before they're two years old. Oh my Lord. Uh, when you look at the statistics over 85 before there's two before they're two. So they never, they've never been able to bond or attach because yeah, that's they, such a key part of human. It's all, it's all life. Yeah, it's it all is. Life. It so is. if you look at the statistics um, and then we'll get into the hopeful stuff and the solution, wow. but if you look at, you know, 85% of girls that are born as a, as a NAS baby will have out of wedlock pregnancies while they're using drugs before they're 18. So the cycle 85%. 85%. So they just 85%. repeat, the cycle just kind of it keeps totally repeating. Repeats. It just right. totally repeats. Yep. The average mom will have several several of these babies, not just one. And I've heard as high as seven, but I haven't been able to back that up. But we've already treated 14 babies since we opened and had seven moms here, all of whom were homeless, by the way. And we've had uh, one mom that had, this was her fourth uh, baby that was dependent on drugs. The other three had been taken away. And then uh, another mom, this was her fifth baby. Uh, and so we're not doing anything to stop stop this cycle. Where are the dads? Are they anywhere in this picture? He, oftentimes they're missing. We'll occasionally have have a dad that will, will still be involved. Uh, we'll have grandparents that will be involved, great yeah. aunts that will be involved. Yep. Uh, and we've had some success stories already with moms that have gone through treatment while they're here. Uh, we found housing for them while they're here. Their babies uh, successfully gone through withdrawal while they're here. And rather than uh, be homeless and lose another child, they we found permanent housing for them and, and a place for them. One of our moms just got a job yesterday, hmm. uh, was all excited and keeping in close touch with us. But eight, over 80% of these babies will have, uh, boys and girls will have serious mental health issues. Um, you know, most of the boys will end up in the criminal justice system pretty early, hmm. pretty early on. Uh, a great majority will, will experience homelessness. And so, you know, when we look at what we see in society, I don't know what's going on in Des Moines, but in Spokane, um, you know, we have a, a Camp Hope that had over a thousand uh, homeless in it uh, this summer. I think it's down to about 400 during the middle of the winter, four or 500. But, you know, it's not, you look at a lot of mental illness, you look at 
uh, youth violence in schools. You look at the worsening opioid crisis, how it just keeps getting. I mean, I remember, yeah, this was, you're probably too young for this, but I remember Nancy Reagan saying, just say no in the Oh, 80s. no, I remember. Yep. You know, and then the opioids yep. didn't hit until like 2008, that time frame. And then right. we have a pandemic in 2020, and then we have fentanyl. So it's just with between the numbers and the drugs and, 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 the, and, the, and the low cost of fentanyl and its prevalence on the streets and that, uh, this thing is just exploding. Well, it's a perfect storm now because you look at the next, the next alcoholics, substance use, distress individuals, um, you know, the ones that are going to be the, the next ones coming up behind us, Gen Z, right. you know, that's, that's 10 to 24 years old. And, you know, that's a third of the world's population. So you think about that. It's like 3 wow. billion people. Um, there, there's a number of now, first of all, they're a fascinating generation. Uh, I've studied them quite a bit because yeah. the project that we're doing for our, our, um, our new, uh, new app is heavily geared towards Gen Z. So I had to know the generation real well before I could design a, 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 a an online mental health vehicle for yeah. them. But, you know, they are the most depressed, the most anxious, the most uncertain generation ever. Um, they're also the first generation ever to list mental health as the number one New Year's resolution. That bodes wow. well. That means they understand that they need help. So, yep. and they're, they're searching for help. And so that, that's a statistic that kind of bodes well, but the problem is, is the, the way society set up with social media, for example, I mean, it's extremely difficult for Gen Z kids to find meaning and purpose right now. And, um, and then you throw in substance abuse and, um, unhealthy relationships with money, things like gambling, and we got to find a way as the adults in this equation to break these cycles, to, to get these kids either, you know, not repeating it. So they're having children right. just generation after generation. So, you right. know, there's a lot of, a lot of this is not going to be on them. It's going to be on us to design yeah. the programs to, you know, write the ship so they can at least inherit a world that has better, you know, tr treatment for them if they do go down some of these roads. Right. Well, and you mentioned earlier, you know, how'd you get into this? And, and, you know, there's a few reasons why I'm so excited to be doing what I'm doing. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm not very good at golf. And, and second, my wife doesn't want me around the house all the time. And, and, and third, like you mentioned earlier on, it is just so much fun to learn mm -hmm. um, and to meet new people and learn new things. I'm a lawyer. So, you know, most health professionals have forgotten more than I'll ever learn in the rest of my life, but it's right. just so much fun to, to learn. And now I see how complicated the healthcare system is, and that's a whole nother mm -hmm. conversation. But then I think the fourth thing that kind of motivates me, well, actually five, but the fourth thing that, that really motivates me is I do feel some sense of responsibility. I'm, I'm the ultimate baby boomer born in 1950. And, you know, my group loosed a lot, loosened a lot of forces in the 60s. And, uh, you know, with, with, you know, drugs and free sex and everything goes and there's no such thing as truth and uh, mm -hmm. you can't trust anybody and all institutions are bad and Vietnam and everything else and racism and, and that and, and, and a lot of, a lot of great things came out of it, whether you look at the women's movement and, and I think really uh, civil rights gaining some, some, uh, momentum, although it's great to see it gain a lot more here in the last few years. Mm -hmm. But and then the environment and a lot of wonderful things have, right. have have come out of what we did. 
But I'll tell you this drug problem, I think we added some real fire to it. So I feel a little responsibility there. And then I think the fifth reason is just I'm a person of faith. I happen to be a Christian. And I just think, you know, I just look at the hands and feet of Jesus, you know, that are trying to help the the least fortunate. And, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm reading the decline and fall of the Roman Empire now to see what hmm. similarities there are with what we're seeing in America. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that was great about the Christian community um which I think we need to learn something from, but right at the very, very, very beginning, you know, the Romans, if they didn't like a baby because of the sex or disability or whatever, would put the baby outside the walls of the city to die. And the Christians would go and grab that child and raise that child. And, um, you know, that, that uh, had a huge impact on, on that society and on that mm -hmm. culture over time. And I really feel like in some respects and in, a, in a, almost a metaphorical or analogous way, these little babies that are being born dependent on drugs, nobody, I mean, I don't think anybody should drug, should judge anybody from, from drug use. I think that's not helpful. As you well know, it's not, it's not really the solution. I'm not saying there's mm -hmm. no accountability. There is a mm -hmm. piece of accountability, but we judge way, way too quickly. We judge the moms, the dads, right. the, young, the young people, everybody, but nobody has the audacity to judge these babies. Right. They're totally, totally innocent. Yeah. And, and I think there's a there's a real power in helping these babies. I think a lot of these NAS babies, these babies being born dependent on drugs are sort of being thrown outside the city walls. Mm -hmm. They're sort of our modern thing. And I think what we're trying to do in a very small way is just grab some of these babies one at a time and bring them back and try to try to change the trajectory of their life. Well, I know you're from a state that is pretty liberal in in a lot of this stuff. Oh, uh, totally. Harm reduction, things like that. What's your personal thoughts on our um, struggle we're having? Because I know I come from a state that's the opposite. We don't even have fentanyl test strips that are legal here yet. And harm reduction is like a very naughty word here in Iowa. So you go out to where you're from and um, it's a different mindset. But I guess my question is, do you think it's working? Do you think, you know, decriminalization, legalization, harm reduction, these things um, is the way we should be looking at this war on drugs or do we do we keep doing what we're doing in reference to the criminalization, the, the fact that things are not legal and, you know, we don't have safe syringe areas around here in the Midwest. And it's like, I'm really interested in what your thoughts are on that. Cause you're, you're, like I said, you're in the war zone right there in your state. Right. Well, I don't, I really, uh, Jeff need to be careful cause I'm not an expert. I'm learning rapidly. I like your I'm answer right there. <laughs> so maybe no. not your opinion, but I guess, what are you observing in your well, own I state? Think, maybe, think, maybe that. And, and this is just, and this could be from a totally from a position of ignorance. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm sure there's people that listen to this podcast that know way, 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 oh, yeah. way, way more about this. And so I, I want to yep. have a huge caveat. I generally think that criminalization and I, I've, you know, come, I ran as a pretty conservative Republican in, in 2004, you know, and I, my thinking has evolved a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm uh, you know, I'm conservative in some areas, but much more liberal than I used to be in, in other areas. And this Myself, would, be one, yep. would be one of them because I think criminalization has uh, not helped. If, if you've got a, a young person that's gotten fentanyl on the street or something like that, we need, we need to be focusing on the dealer and how that, how that supply got there more than, than the kid and, and, you know, who may overdose or takes fentanyl or get some sort of mm -hmm. mexis or some sort of colored drugs or uh, pills or something like that. So I think where you have a hard and fast on one end that any possession is criminal, um, 
I think that's a problem. On the other hand, we have, you know, we've legalized marijuana essentially mm-hmm. in Washington and Oregon and California, Colorado and many states. And, you know, marijuana is harmful to these infants in utero. And, mm-hmm. and we have no, I don't think we have much research and studies on, on the impact that it's having on these babies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much science we're having on the impact that it's having on our young adults. I don't know how much research is being done on how this leads to the use of, of other drugs and the relationship there. So while I'm not, I'm not saying we should criminalize all marijuana, no, I understand. But, but we, we, there's just so much ignorance floating yeah. around and we, and we were throwing billions and billions downstream in the, so, you know, after these little babies' brains are pretty well set, you know, in the first yeah. few years and the first few months are, are critical and and then we throw money down at mental health and and you know uh, I had a we had a, one of our donors gave us two hundred thousand dollars and he's the CEO of a, of a of a, a medical company here in town called Excelsior Wellness and they probably treat about ten thousand families and they have detox facilities and they have treatment facilities but they also have a school for kids that have been uh, are tough to deal with and are having a tough time and have been kicked out of the public schools here in the Spokane region, I think, and I could be off on this, but I think they have about 200 children mm-hmm. that they house and that they educate. And when he made this donation on, on behalf of Excelsior Wellness, he said, uh, Sean, you've heard about the million dollar kid. And I said, no, is this a, is this a kid that that cost society a million dollars over his, over his lifetime. He Hmm. said, no, we're dealing with kids that cost society a million dollars a year. And you're talking about buying a facility for a million and a half or something. That's going to treat a hundred of these babies a year so that we don't have the million dollar kid per year downstream. So Hmm. the criminal justice system, everything needs, I think needs to be really looked at with a fresh, with a fresh start. And, um, I mean, having these conversations is, is what it's about, you know, talking about yeah. it. Um, you know, you, um, I go back and all we can do really is kind of look at our own lives and kind of take data from that and then extrapolate it to what we learn. I go back to my son, our son, Seth. I mean, you know, at the time I was going through it as a dad, really for the first time, because he was our oldest son. I was really kind of thrown into being perplexed about the drug. I've never done drugs in my life. And I was an alcoholic for 35 years. So and a compulsive gambler. So I understand addictions quite well, but I never, I never did the drug thing. And so I really struggled with trying to understand, you know, why can't he, you know, what's marijuana, what's the attraction to pot? I just, you know, I didn't get it. And he'd always say, well, it's legal here, dad, legal there. And and so, but as I got a little bit more into my ag- av- advocacy and met people that were really into this deep, I would start to find out about the prefrontal cortex and about how it's not fully formed till, you know, your mid twenties. And we're talking about kids that are 15, 16, 17, 18 that are smoking pot, you know, what does that do to, to the brain? You know, what does that do? And I I don't, I think the evidence, I think you you could find people that probably could argue and win cases on both sides of the fence there. Um, But I think the reality is, is that we need to, as a society, be real cognizant of not just is marijuana legal, but who's doing it? You know, what what are the ages of the, of, of the, of the users? And if it is, predominantly in some of these states, the younger kids, you know, they're getting it, you know, if legal or not legal, they're going to find it. I don't think that, right. <laughs> that's, that's not going to inhibit, prohibit them from getting marijuana, whether it's legal or not. Um, is, you know, 
what, what is this doing to their brains? You know, right. and, and, and then you put in alcohol, which is, you know, a depressant. Right. Um, right. It doesn't feel like it when you're drinking it because you get all excited, but then it hits you. It's like, you know, what is this doing to their motivation? What is this doing to their desire? What is this doing to their purpose and meaning in life, their spirituality, their connection to the universe? I mean, is it just numbing it? Is it dumbing right. it? And I don't know. And that's, you know, like you said, there's people watching this that, you know, forget more in an hour than I'll know in my career, my whole right. lifetime. Right. And I, I lean into that heavily. My, my, my being naive and being ignorant is actually a strength because I'm open-minded. I'm open-minded. Very open about it because it's, it's very, very, very true. But I th I'll tell you one thing that I'm running into Jeff, just as a, you know, I am a lawyer. And so that's a confession. And, you know, after 40 years of evidence and doing things tr somewhat logically for, for clients and thinking in that way, it's been interesting. My ignorance, I think has almost been a, a blessing because I feel like with this one huge problem that we're dealing with, with babies that are born dependent on drugs, I feel like we've kind of flipped over this rock and we see all these cockroaches flying around mm. with a light on it. And I, and things just keep coming up from a public policy standpoint that I go, why, why are we doing this? I'll give you an example. So we have a methadone clinic here in Spokane. And so if mm -hmm. you have a, if you have, if you go into the methadone clinic, they're going to give you, they're going to give you methadone. Right. And uh, people go in daily and we have pregnant moms that are going into the methadone clinic daily. And um, there's no disclosure that methadone can be, can be harmful to these babies that you can be born dependent on methadone also and in some respects, I'm from a clinical standpoint, I'm understanding that that methadone can be very, very harmful to these babies. There's no disclosure to these moms. In fact, they're apparently positively being told when they ask that there is no uh, negative impact. So uh, and then and then you have the system. If they want to have more methadone, they can increase their dosage here in Spokane just by asking for it. But if they want to wean themselves from the methadone or lower their dosage, they have to a, see a physician and get a prescription for that to happen. Okay. Well, how many of them are going to do that? Right. So the whole system is ingrained towards these women taking that are pregnant, uh, taking methadone. And if anything, increasing their dosage. We've had moms that have come in here that were taking the maximum amount of methadone at our local clinic, which is, I don't know, 300 milligrams or something like that. I think you can go up to 330 milligrams a day or something like that. And they were also taking fentanyl off the, on the street. Hmm. So um, anyway, my, my point in blithering on about this is that we're just running it. I think we've got to, got to do stuff from a, a scientific and an evidence-based standpoint and try to peel away as much emotion as we can from this and as much judgmentalism and bias that we all bring to different subjects and just go, okay, we've had this great experiment in our country with, you know, legalizing drugs or whatever. Is that, is that good or is it not? What's mm -hmm. the research say? What does it do to brains that are forming and mm -hmm. what's it do to babies' brains and in utero? And uh, so, so yes. And I think that research is going to happen. One of the things I'm really excited about is we have a medic, two medical schools actually in Spokane, the University of Washington and Gonzaga are in partnership on one medical school. And then Washington State University has a relatively new medical school. It's less than 10 years old. And we are partnering with WSU Health Sciences, um, both their med school and their nursing school and, and talking with their some of their leaders, uh, one of which uh, uh, a woman uh, in, introduced me to, to Deborah because mm, okay. Deborah had, 
She's a professor at WSU named Celestina Barbosa Leitner, who's been studying opioid uh, SUD, um, the, the, the whole thing with women and, and with gender. And so her Celestine has been working with us and uh, is going to do research. We hope to do research on, on what's happening here. And that's how I got introduced to Deborah and then to you. I have two questions. Um, what's the role of the government in all this? And where is the, opi- where's the opioid settlement money going? Is it going into any of this area? So, so I know Deborah is really focused on that and she got me into it and we, we've just started that. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I know there's $54 billion that's sloshing around mm-hmm. somewhere in the country that's supposed to be uh, for mitigation and for uh, treatment and for different programs in the different states. And then it goes down to the con- county level and there's a tracker that, that you can go online and find out, but it is really difficult, at least for me, yeah. um, to kind of follow the money where that's going. So I, I knew that was going to happen though. And I, you, and I think we need yeah. from a public policy standpoint, both state and federal, uh, I think we need to have, uh, some transparency on where this, where this money is going and whether it's being used for its intended purpose, uh, purposes on the public policy side, I'm really, really excited. Um, and one of the, um, you know, I, when I ran for Congress, there was a woman uh, by the name of Kathy McMorris Rogers, um, who who beat me like a drum. And she's she's she, she's been in Congress for 18 years. She's a Republican, but she is now chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee as of last Tuesday. Um, the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, interestingly enough, has oversight over NIH, the National Institute for Health, right. CDC. And CMS Center for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Services, and um, so she is really, really focused on this. And I've been talking with her for about five years. In 2018, we found out because of Lily's Place in West Virginia that there was a a, a law called the CRIB Act. I don't know what the acronym stands hmm. for, but the CRIB Act, um, and it was in the Senate version of an opioid eight billion dollar opioid package that Portman out of Ohio had gotten in. Um, and then it wasn't in the House package and it was in the conference committee. We had breakfast with Kathy. She went back and got the CRIB Act into the House bill. It was voted on again and the president signed it into law. What's the CRIB Act do? The CRIB Act amended Medicaid to expressly cover the types of services we provide, neonatal abstinence uh, syndrome services uh, by license, state licensed pediatric transitional care facilities. And I thought at that time, hooray, these services are going to be covered by Medicaid. And it took me three or four years to find out that while the feds pay 100 cents on the dollar for Medicare, for the wealthy states like Washington, they only pay 50% of Medicaid. The other Mm. 50% has to come from the state. And so over the last year and a half, we've been dealing with our Washington State Healthcare Authority, which has taken the position that our state's state Medicaid plan does not expressly cover neonatal abstinence syndrome services, even though Mm. there's pages and pages that provide for coverage for uh, chemical dependency withdrawal for youths. And last time I looked, you know, somebody under a year old is a youth under 18. Yeah, that's so odd that they could clarify it that way. So we've gone to the state legislature and our legislative session for the next biennium just started a week ago, Monday. Uh, and we have uh, 
three folks that are in pivotal positions in the state legislature, a guy named Andy Billig, who's our state uh, Senate, Senate majority leader, uh, who's following us closely, and then a guy named uh, Marcus Riccelli, who's in the House, and he's head of a committee called Health and Wellness. Anyway, they're looking at, this has just happened this last week, of the possibility of Maddie's Place being a four-year pilot project hmm. where we're given uh, funding for the next uh, four years of, of roughly $10 million um, that we would use to operate on, and then we would have, have a chance to prove our case that we should be permanently covered under the state Medicaid plan. Um, I'm asking Kathy McMorris Rogers to come up with a, to help with a federal solution. And so we're working because even if we get it covered here in Washington state, mm -hmm. is, a, is a group like me and Tricia going to have to do this in Iowa or you and somebody else going to have to do it in Iowa and the state by state patchwork that we're trying to do for a national opioid crisis with these babies is going to take 50 years at this, at the rate we're going. Yeah, you start looking at this opioid epidemic, and um, man, it just—it seems like there's no end in sight. You know, there's, um, you know, older people getting addicted to this stuff. You know, especially the oxycontin things like that, and then they try to get right. off it, have the withdrawals, and they find out that they can't get their prescription refilled, so they go to the next natural place. To the doctors on the street, right? They go to yeah. the street, and um, we know how that's been going. So, um, so I guess another question I was going to ask you is maybe for the people watching this, what's a typical day like at Maddie's place? I mean, what, what give us an idea what happens day to day in there. Right. Um, you know, for the person, for someone who has no idea, is this a clinical place or is this more of a place where there's peer to peer support? Or, I mean, kind of, how does this work in regards to your day to day functions? Right. Well, for anyone who's like really interested in, 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 uh, seeing some detail to your question, our website actually has quite a bit of content on it. We have three, three to four minute videos that kind of uh, answer that question and actually give a tour of the facility. Um, and, the, and the website is just Maddie's Place, M-A-D-D-I-E-S, uh, no apostrophe, place, P-L-A-C-E, one word, dot org. So Maddie's and I'll place have that as a link on this podcast, but I've seen all awesome. those. I've seen it all. I've been on your site quite a bit. But for the person out there that really right. doesn't right. understand, so, you know. So basically the idea, and Trish was heavily, really influenced this. We wanted to have a facility that was not like an institution. Mm. It's not, it, it, you know, it's very warm. Yep. The lighting is very warm. Non-judgmental. It's non-judgmental, very loving, lots right. of wonderful art and sayings. On, and it's a very from the I have to think those moms there. are already in a bad place anyway when they no, come in it's, there. It's, it sounds bizarre, you know. Uh, but it's a happy, it's really right. a pretty happy place. We have 40 employees. We have 15 nurses. They've come from NIC mm. units and that. They're really happy to be here. They, they love it here. They love the, the, the treatment that we're providing and the care that we're, that we're giving. So it's just, it has a really positive, it's a real positive home-like environment. Right. And actually where the magic happens is in a care center in the back of the facility that um, has almost like a large living room. And then it has eight uh, rooms that are that go off of this, almost like a hub and spoke. Mm -hmm. And so each room can handle uh, one infant and one and one mom. But um, but but where but everybody congregates in this living space where there's couches and and rockers and soft chairs and uh, it's pretty dimly lit and and it's quiet, very soundproof. Because one of the things you're trying to do uh, with these babies, their brains are overstimulated. They're so, they're, 
brains are going so much depending on the drugs they use that bright lights, bright sounds, going outside, being put in a car, car doors, yelling, any kind of, uh, even in a NIC unit where you've got beepers going off and doors closing and coming and yeah. going and that is not really optimal. What's the average age of a baby? So the babies that are coming in to see us are uh, anywhere between just a few days, four or five days after they've come out of the ho- of the NIC unit in the hospital to as many, probably as old as three months or so. Our license enables us to treat uh, uh, infants up to one year in age. Oh, okay. um, but we are seeing some, what happens, you have weird stuff that happens with these babies. For example, the, the, uh, the, the, we have, we're born with an instinct to be able to suck. Mm-hmm. And so a nipple, bottle, what, right. breastfeed, whatever, that becomes volitional at about three to four months. It's no longer an instinct, it's volitional. And if their brains aren't straightened out and ordered by the time that it becomes volitional, the yeah, babies right. out in the community don't know how to eat. So they come into pediatricians with wow. all sorts of malnutrition issues, losing weight, gut issues, all sorts of things. And right. it's simply because they weren't taught to suck during mm. the first few months. A lot of them were born with deformities in their mouth. They have tongue ties, all sorts of different funky things. Mm. So we probably have 20 different nipples that are just identified for each single unique baby and different formulas that are identified for each individual baby. We have a a, bre- um, uh, a breast milk uh, place that's down uh, in uh, Portland that'll overnight uh, pasteurize, you know, mm. screened milk with the right Good. calorie content to us. And so uh, they gave us a donated a refrigerator and that. But the place is very, very, very warm. I think the staff is, um, you know, just exceptional. There are people that are highly trained as, as nurses and our clinical director is our founder, Tricia Hughes. Um, we have a medical director and a provider pool of doctors behind her. So it's just a really warm, friendly place. It's very non-judgmental. We also provide free room and board for the moms. Good. So we don't, and you know, we're, we're charging uh, what a payer that we have coordinated care is paying for our services. Although we've had to raise about $3 million locally to get this thing uh, off, off, off the ground. Um, but now we're, we're being paid for our services. We're trying to change the state legislative law to, uh, to kind of keep that going. But um, anyway, it's, it's, a gr- it's a great environment. The wraparound services include mental health counseling for the moms. So we're partnering with someone, uh, Excelsior Wellness, to do that. Uh, you know, we're, we have cooking classes. We have folks come in to cut the mom's hair. We have different social events around Christmas and Thanksgiving and uh you probably so, have a lot of success stories, you know. We, I mean, either moms that have straightened their 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 life out, and yep. and obviously the kids, you know, like Maddie's what fourteen, you said, and she now starts right. to want to. So, are there other Maddies in the system that have you know become kind of the the pillar of 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 um how this thing can work in a good way? Oh, well, I'm sure there are. Uh, I mean, other than I'm sure there are. I know that uh, that. Uh, uh, Trisha also has a 22-year-old son who basically uh, was born with severe uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah. And so, uh, but he's a wonderful, wonderful young man. And, uh, you know, has been raised in a very, very loving home, which has made all the difference in the world. I mean, uh, there's some things that happen, you know, that are permanent that you can't change. But, 
So yeah, I think there I think there are a lot of success stories that are out there, even right here in Spokane. Well, I think it's it's awesome what you're doing, and I think you know um, the more that these type of um, I have to guess you guys there's facilities like this. Maybe there aren't. I mean, we're the it, fourth is, in the country. There should be the issue is see Jeff, that's crazy. Be, I just thought there'd be four hundred of them. There should yeah, be yeah. I mean these things. There's wow, I just assumed that there was four like in, in your state. <laughs> well, we'll we'll be able to you we you know, if we think if there's if there's a thousand of NAS babies being born in Spokane alone, you Imagine. know, we, we may treat, you know, fifty to a hundred this year. So that's five to ten percent. So hmm. what we're hoping is once we get everything fixed with the state that we can start to replicate this model, not only here in Spokane, but elsewhere in the state and beyond. That's great. You know, it's, it's all hands on deck. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm spending time in the Gen Z area. I know there's a lot of people that work with recovery and, uh, um, rehab, you know, the people that are maybe a little bit older and now we got the babies on the other end, you know, it's like, if we can come at this issue at simultaneously at all fronts, yep. then we can start severing these cycles, you know, these, these repeated situations where, kids are born, they end up doing the same thing and then they have kids and they end up and, and nothing really changes. It just creates more, you know, just disconnection in society and more chaos and more misery. And it's, it's really something that is preventable. I mean, that's, that's the frustration. I mean, it's, right. it's certainly a lot of the, the issues we are having, we have to really look in the mirror and, um, you know, take some accountability that we just haven't had a good, done a good job as, you know, uh, as, as a society to find constructive ways that we can get these things, you know, fixed. And, um, you know, who doesn't love a little baby? I mean, it just tears my heart out to think there's a 18 year old child somewhere being out there on the street somewhere that, you know, I didn't have that strikes against me. You know, I grew up in the leave it, the beaver house, you know, and yeah, I, did, I did too. Yeah. Probably. So it's like, I, I can't, I just can't even fathom. And my kids didn't have anything deprived. They were, they were you right. know, spoiled. Like a lot of kids right. are. And, Yep. But then just by the birth lottery, you know, boom, you're 18 months, 18 days and you're on the street somewhere. It's like that kid is so innocent and whatever we can do to help and then make sure they not just save their life, but make sure they can, you know, get the right things going. So when they get to be at that age of first use that they're not using, you know, and I think I think when you you hit it, when you said it's all hands on deck. Right. I can't, I can't imagine, Jeff, what you've gone through in the loss of a 23 year old son. And I'm surely not arguing that we shouldn't have all the resources possible for all these different age groups. Right. Up to my age, you know. Right. Uh, we really should. It's all hands on deck and bless all the people around the country that have been working on these issues. Oh, yeah. For, for decades and decades. Tirelessly. And decades. Yep. I'm a new newbie and I'm just kind of, but I do think we have this opportunity with, with these babies. And from a political standpoint, um, you know, my, it, 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 I, I really feel, Jeff, and this is probably hyperbole, but anyway, let me throw it out there anyway, that, you know, that we're, it's almost like D-Day, really. I don't think people really realize, you know, how serious, what a serious threat this is to our country, what's happening. And, you know, Rome fell from within, by and large. Yeah, the barbarians were beating it on the outside, but yeah. it was pretty easy to push over the wall. Uh, when it happened, and uh, it li by and large fell from the inside, and I, and I think the risk to America is is the same. So if you think of this as a national emergency, you know, and we have the resources, it, we, oh, it's, it's, you know, no when question. I was I went to that you know this 
the feds cover 50% of the Medicaid costs in the state of Washington. We have 2.2 million out of our 8 million people that are on Medicaid in the state of Washington. Hmm. Um, and during the COVID crisis, during the pandemic, the states got a, a 7% bump in that. So they got 57% of their uh, me Medicaid costs were covered by the feds. And then, of course, that got, got pulled back. And what I'm arguing with Kathy and with her position in energy and commerce, this is a strategic threat to the country that's the pandemic was bad and it's, it was a lot of, it was horrible, but it's come and gone. We don't have a vaccine or a mask or anything else for this opioid crisis. Yeah, Are you, and so I'm asking for 1%, just right. 1% to go from 50% to 51% nationally. We could have thousands of these clinics and we could help a lot of these. And if you help these babies, the other thing that happens is you start to help the moms because what an in, we had a we had a mom here, our first mom who had a C-section uh, the day that we uh, the day that we opened on Monday, October third. Um, she this was her fourth child. She's thirty nine years old. She lost the first three children to to the state to CPS. Wow. It was her fourth child. Um, she's withdrawing. She's been using fentanyl, and her baby's withdrawing from fentanyl. We, she heard her social worker heard about us. We had, that we we're going to open. It told her about it. She wanted to come. So we went to pick her up uh, on Wednesday, October 5th. And she told us, if you guys hadn't come pick, pick me up, I would have been on the street uh, tonight wow. with my baby. So here's a woman who's 39 years old. She's already lost three children. Wow. And she's got her fourth child. So anyway, we took, we of course, brought her in. Her child went through 75 days of withdrawal treatment. We got her into outpatient treatment and drove her back and forth. She stayed with us. She successfully went through that, and we found her permanent housing during the 75 mm -hmm. days she was here, and she got a job yesterday. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to line up daycare for her now and stuff like that, but that's her first mom. Wow. So maybe maybe that dyad, that mom and baby, and then if you can go out a little bit, so back to the D-Day thing, I just think, I look at this little Maddie's Place and Lily's Place and what you're doing and what other people are doing. It's like we're getting a beachhead in Normandy, yeah. and then yeah. we're we're in. I, I'm like to think of the baby as the point of the spear because nobody has the audacity to judge these babies politically: right. Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, yeah. liberals. I don't care where you are in drug legalization. No, everybody looks at these babies. I, I bring people back there into that care center, guys that are tough and that, <laughs> and they they start bawling. People yeah. just start crying when they see. You know, how can I can only do? imagine. I, and I can so imagine. obviously that's wonderful to help the baby, but I think it's also an opening to, to soften people's hearts about, about this whole issue, not just yeah. the babies, but your 23 year old Seth and, yeah. and all the, all the other victims of, of this horrible thing that's happening to us. So anyway, well, enough, I, enough of the sermon, but I think of, um, you know, my wife too passed away and I right. think of the, I think of the, you know, if the event doesn't happen, if my son, does, if our son doesn't die, right? Um, there's a 99% probability my wife's still here. Oh, the, so, the... so his death just brought her down too. So it, it actually oh. amounted than two deaths. And then, you know, if I wasn't in a position where I'm in with my, you know, ability to reframe and kind of, you know, things that I've done that worked for me, it could have brought me down as well. I mean, I had a very scary incident last Christmas, not this Christmas, but the one before where I would say it was my first brush with suicidal ideation. So yep. I, I almost, oh. I almost left too. And it's like, so, 
you would think that that one choice my son made on that day and all the preceding choices, because he probably dodged bullets, you know, for years, he just happened to, he wasn't right. a heroin addict. He, he'd only been trying for like a week, but the other stuff he was doing, you know, cocaine right. could have had fentanyl, you know, um, right. but it's like, you know, when that event happened, just the Pandora's box, just the collateral damage, just the, the, uh, the ripple effect, you know, and, and yeah. to this moment, you know, he has a daughter, she's six, her name's Brighton. And it's like, that ripple's still going to go now through her whole life. You know, that one decision he made at that moment, just to get high, he wasn't trying to die. And that's one family, you know, on one street in one town, in one state, in one country. Right. And right. this is a big problem. We better start addressing this addiction problem in this country because there is no end in sight and the end in sight is bad. Yeah, you it know? really is. And it's just, well, I admire you so much, uh, Jeff, for how you've been able to turn this horrific situation with both your son and your wife into such a positive force to try to impact and have in their name, I'm sure, to oh, yeah. To, 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 to really rescue a lot of people. A lot of people obviously are going to hear what you have to say at different events and different venues and all the stuff you're doing on mental health and everything. And so I just really uh, have such great respect uh, for what, what you're doing with your life. And, uh, you know, Lord knows that there, but for the grace of God, I mean, I, I did use drugs in the sixties and the early seventies. Mm -hmm. And it's just a miracle that I happened to get through it. And I was right. totally born spoiled. My dad was a lawyer. I was, we had everything we needed in that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I still was a screw up. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just by the grace of God that kind of, I made it, made it through uh, my own issues, which we all have. And so, um, but anyway, it's, it's just so, so cool to, to be able to identify something and, and try to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and not mm -hmm. and play a little bit less golf and, um, and, you know, try to, try to make a difference for each one of these babies and hopefully for some of their moms and work with really wonderful people like you and, and Deborah and Celestina yeah. and maybe, maybe push some public policy to kind of get a few more dollars that are strategic, not just, I'm not talking about throwing money. I'm, I'm right. talking about that. I'm talking about, trying to do something about that million dollar a year kid for society yeah. where we don't spend a million dollars a year on that kid. Yeah. I've got this mindset in me that, you know, I picked all these roads to go down after all this happened. It's like, I could have been that fentanyl dad, you know, out there protesting fentanyl, you know, I could be a, you know, an alcohol awareness husband out there talking about alcohol abuse. But as I started going down this, I started thinking to myself, you know, it, there is no downside to collaboration on any level. So I could be talking to any advocate that's trying to save lives and somewhere along the line, we're connected. You yeah. know, if it's a baby, well, play it back far enough. You're going to find a mom that probably was an alcoholic that got right. into drugs that totally. next thing you know, she had a child. So I mean, there, there is a, there's a pattern here that I think someone could say, well, Jeff, why are you, why are you working, collaborating with somebody who's working with, you know, uh, babies? And I'm like, why not? It's like, what well, this is the opportunity we have as advocates is that we can work with anybody we want to work with. And so I'm just happy our paths crossed. Um, I'd love to see Maddie's place some point or, um, well, you will, I'm sure. When, yeah. When I'm in the yeah, area, we, we need to have one in Des Moines too, you know, so I, I, I can do it. I can Cedar Rapids as yeah, well. I mean, like I, that. I, who knows? 
yep. we can certainly do some work together at some level, but how do people reach you? What's the easiest way to, to contact you if people watch this and want to learn more? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, uh, my, I'm happy to have people call me on my cell phone, tell you the truth. So it's area code 509, area code 509. And my uh, number is 496-3753, 496-3753. Another way is just Sean, S-H-A-U-N dot cross, C-R-O-S-S, like cross your heart, Sean.cross at mattysplace.org. And further information is on our website, mattysplace.org Maddie's, too. So been yeah, a thank you so, thank you so much. Pleasure and an honor, man. I really enjoyed this and um, I'm looking forward to having this post and get the feedback from people. But in the meantime, um, I, I know I'll be reaching out with you some other areas that we'll talk about. So okay. um, Sounds good. thanks for your time, man. I really, yeah. really admire what you're doing. Oh, well, likewise, Jeff. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right, man. Keep living on the turd. 